0: Hey, good morning, Faith on Hill. Pastor Adam here. Uh, I am excited because I actually have something to announce today. Starting Sunday, July 5th, we will have our first in-person church service since March. Beginning on July 5th and every Sunday after that for the summer, we are going to have church in the field every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m., So you bring your lawn chair, your beach blanket. Um, If you have a pop-up tent or or a sunshade, bring that. We are going to have some pop-up tents and shades as well for people that need them. Uh, We are looking forward to it. We're going to maintain six feet apart distance, social distancing, no handshakes, all of that. But we are excited to meet together again. Now, we know that not everybody can meet publicly yet and not everybody is ready to meet publicly yet. So there is no pressure we are going to continue our online presence. Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m., an online Bible study will continue to premiere. Thursdays, our 20-minute Bible study podcast will continue to release new episodes, so we are going to maintain our constant online presence, but we are looking forward to meeting together again publicly. As always, uh, on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., we have our Zoom gathering. I'm posting a link to that in the chat. That's been an incredibly beneficial time. Um, We've been praying for each other. We've been encouraging each other. And also, quite honestly, we have walked through some of the difficulties. A lot of the uh, discussion that has happened in that Zoom group uh, centered around uh, COVID and uh, racial tensions, and all of the things that we as a church and we as a society have been dealing with. It's been great to interact with our church family there. So again, we'd love to see you 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights. And then, of course, July 5th, Church in the Field. We're looking forward to being together in person. I'm thank you thankful that we have continued to be the family of God as a church virtually over the phone, through email, through chat, and uh, just so happy that you are here with us this morning. Now, if you don't or haven't in the past considered yourself part of our church family, there is an open welcome and invitation. We want you to be with us. And so starting July 5th, we would love to see you there. If you're in the chat this morning, just raise your hand, say hello. Hey, I'm new here. We just want to say hi and welcome you here to our online service. And we're looking forward to having you with us July 5th for Church in the Field. God bless you, and we'll see you in person soon. Hey, well good morning. Good morning. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 9. Have you ever heard of a mountaintop experience? Maybe you've been to a literal mountaintop and had some sort of encounter with God, a life-changing experience. You know, every year we send our youth up to government camp for their their snow retreat. I I had a mountaintop experience when I was 14 years old in Big Bear, California, up in the mountains. I was baptized in water, and then later that week, I received what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was in the Austrian Alps when I was 19. The first time that I spoke in tongues. If you don't know what those are, you're not familiar with that aspect of the Christian faith, uh, Acts chapter 2 would be the reference that I would give you. But I've been on mountaintops, and maybe you have too. And in our text this morning, Jesus and three of his closest followers are going to have a mountaintop experience. They are literally going to be on top of a mountain, but while they are there, something is going to happen out of the ordinary, something amazing, something incredible. But I want to talk about getting through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, you may say, what does a mountaintop have to do with the valley? When I'm down in the valley, when I'm going through trial, when I'm going through hardship, what does the mountaintop have to do with anything? Bear with me. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And he said to them, that's Jesus speaking to his disciples, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them to a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. What does verse 1 have to do with the rest of the story? Jesus says to his followers, some of you who are standing here will not die before you see the kingdom of God come in power. There are different views on what verse 9 means. There's also different views on, sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. There's different views on what it means, but there's different views on where it should be. We believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God to people. But when the Bible was originally written, it was not written in a book And it was not written chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It would have been written on scrolls, on parchment, on the back of, of animal hides. However, it was done in whatever era, they would have written it as a completed work. The chapters and verses came later, and I'm thankful that they did because it's so much easier to find stuff, to find a story, to find a specific verse or a point of doctrine or teaching, so much easier. And in some places, the chapters and verses make a lot of sense. I had to, uh, this last week, I had to outline the whole book of First Corinthians for school. And I'll tell you, I was impressed with how spot on the chapters and verses seem to be laid out for that book. But some places it's kind of like, really, why is that there? That doesn't make any sense. This is one of those places. Is Jesus talking to his disciples at the end of chapter 8, where he's been teaching them that the Messiah had to come and suffer and die and that he would rise again? And it could be that what he is saying is to his disciples some of you are going to see me die and rise again. And so when he says the kingdom of heaven in coming in power, he's speaking of those who would see the resurrection. And in that crowd, maybe some of them passed away before Jesus's death and resurrection. We know that Judas, one of the 12 disciples, died before Jesus's resurrection, so he never saw it. It could be he's speaking of that. It could be, that he is speaking of John, one of the disciples, who before he died, he was the last living of the 12. And before he died, he had visions of the coming kingdom of heaven. We call it the book of the revelation. Could be that. It could be that Jesus is talking about the transfiguration. That he says, some of you here are going to see something incredible. And six days later, three of them did. It could be he's talking about that. Now, someone might say, what does that matter? We have so many problems going on in our world. We have so many issues. We have injustice. We have poverty. We have division. We're divided over politics. We're divided over racial tensions. We're divided over how to respond to COVID. We're divided between young and old, between rich and poor, between urban and suburban and rural. With all that going on, what what does this have to do with my life? Why should I care about the coming kingdom? My parents' generation cared greatly. My generation doesn't seem to care The coming kingdom is an essential part of the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're filling in your notes this morning, the coming kingdom of heaven is an essential part of the good news of Jesus Christ. That we are not stuck forever in a cycle of sin, forever in a cycle of decay, forever in a cycle of warfare that God will make things right, that when Jesus returns, he will establish a kingdom of peace, of righteousness, of justice. There will be no need for protest. There will be no need to stand and say, this injustice must stop because all injustice will be put to an end. If our message as Christians is only for the here and now, then we don't really have good news because the here and now is under the bondage of sin and death. And until Jesus establishes his kingdom, then we will be the victims of the kingdoms of this world because the injustice, the corruption exists on all sides and in all forms. And there's no system that's going to fix everything. The good news isn't just that Jesus loves you. The good news isn't just that Jesus died to forgive our sins. The good news isn't just that Jesus rose again. The good news is also and that Jesus is coming back. And when we're in the valley right now, maybe you are in the valley I've felt in the valley lately. The good news is how things are right now is not how they will always be. That there are those of us, I believe, there is a generation of the church who will be alive to see Jesus come in his power. And those of us who go on, who die before that day, We will be there with God in this new kingdom. We will be resurrected, raised from the dead. That is good news. And when you're in the valley, we need the good news. When we're in the valley, we need to know that our current situation is not all there is. And that's why I think it's good to go to the mountaintop sometimes. It says that Jesus took Peter and James and John with him, and they went up on a high mountain. And there they were alone. Can I suggest that for your mental health, it might be good to turn off Facebook for a few days? That for your mental health, it might be good to shut the TV news off and just read or pray or sit quietly? In fact, let me tell you, for your mental health, sitting quietly Doing nothing for 20 minutes, for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, that will do wonders for you. Lately, I've been trying to do that, to take 10 minutes, to take 15 minutes, and just do nothing. It might sound lazy, it's it's not. I actually think it's refreshing. They go up to a high mountain, they go up alone, and they go with Jesus. Because they need that refreshing. When you're in the valley, you can lose perspective. For three years, we lived in a valley. And and the valley was sort of a narrow valley. And it was easy to lose perspective. We had less sunlight. Because the sun rose a little later because it didn't get over the mountains. And it set a little earlier because it didn't get over, or it, it went over those mountains quicker. You can check this out on YouTube, but I believe it's in Norway. There is a village that exists in a valley. It might be be Switzerland, but I think it's Norway. But there is a village that sits in a valley, and the valley only gets like an hour of direct sunlight per day. And they've realized that is not healthy. So at first, they built a tram system so that you could get up out of the valley And you could spend time, they have a park there, and you could spend time in the sunlight. And then with technology, they have these mirrors that are computer programmed to follow the sun and they will shine sunlight down into the valley. We need that. Why should I care that the kingdom is coming? Because if I can't see the goodness that is ahead, I will lose hope in the middle Of the trial, in the middle of the struggle, because I can lose perspective really easy when I'm surrounded by hills and mountains on all sides and I can't see my way out. Now, the next question I think is fair to ask is how does this affect me? Let me read this again, verse 2. They were with him on a high mountain where they were all alone, and there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put three shelters up, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son Whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Why is it that only Peter and James and John got to go? I don't know. I've thought a lot about this the last couple weeks. I don't have a good answer. My Christian journey and my Christian faith have naturally been charismatic. I I mentioned this earlier, but when I was 14, I was baptized in water. I knew that Christians were baptized in water as a way to publicly declare their faith in Jesus and a way to be obedient to Jesus. And so I said, hey, they're baptizing people in a swimming pool. I'm going to get baptized. And my youth pastor still has a photo of that because my haircut, it was 1994, and my haircut was horrible, and my youth pastor still has it, and every so often it gets posted as a way to embarrass former, he has like a collection of embarrassing former youth group uh, pictures, and, and I, I, it gets posted every so often. Nothing happened. I went in, I got wet. They dunked me, I got more wet. I came out. But in a worship service later that week, what I can only describe as the weight of God's glory came upon me. I could not get, physically could not get off my hands and knees. It was incredible. And I, I learned later, it's what the Bible describes as the filling or the baptism or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I was speaking with a friend of mine recently, and he's never had an experience like that. And his faith has been very cerebral, has been very, um, you know, in his head. He says, it's reasonable for me to follow Jesus. And I don't doubt the sincerity of his faith. But why has my experience been so different than his? Why has his experience been so different than mine? I don't know. I have learned it does not help one bit to play the comparison game. God works in individuals uniquely. And I am thankful for the work of God, the Holy Spirit in my life. And I believe that God's Holy Spirit is working in your life. And you may have never seen a prophecy given. You may never have spoken in tongues. You may never have had some kind of like incredible, emotional, charismatic kind of experience, but God has given you great faith or great wisdom. God has given given you power to, to act with authority. So I don't want to play the comparison game. Why is it that these guys got to go and nine other disciples didn't? I don't know. But that's who Jesus brought with him. Now, it says that he was transfigured. I don't like saying, hey, do you know what the Greek word for that means all the time? Because that implies that you need some kind of special knowledge to really understand the Scripture. But that being said, there are free available tools to find out what's the Greek word or the Hebrew word that translators used or said that, hey, that's the word, we're going to translate it into English. It can be helpful. The word for transfigured, and the reason I I keyed in on transfigured is that's a weird word. We don't use that word often in English language. What's the Greek word? It's the word metamorphomai, metamorphomai. Now, obviously, I think you can figure out pretty quick, we get the word metamorphosis from that. Jesus metamorphosis in front of them. It's a verb, it's active. It wasn't some kind of weird, dreamy thing. There was an action involved. And the word means to transform the very nature of the, es- or the essence. And if you check out 2 Kings chapter 6, I, I put a reference in the notes. Uh, I'm gonna get to why that's there in a minute, but this idea of, of the glory of God of the power of God. And it was almost as if everything got taken away. That's why the second Kings reference is there. Because there was a prophet and the king didn't like this prophet because the prophet had been speaking truth to power. The prophet had been speaking out against the sin and the injustice of this wicked king in Israel. So the king... Sent soldiers to take him out. And the prophet had a a helper, and that helper looked at him and said, "We're, We're in trouble, man. And that prophet prayed, God, open my servant's eyes. And immediately the servant's eyes were open, and you could see the armies of heaven, angels surrounding them. There was no harm that could befall them because they were protected. I believe what happened is that in that moment, for Peter, James, and John, the blinders were removed. The physical realm was metamorpho- you know, metamorphosized, was, was changed. And they had a glimpse into the spiritual things. Why them? Well, I know this. James was the first of the 12 to die for his faith. The book of James in the Bible was not written by the James of Peter, James, and John. This James here was the first to die for his faith in Jesus. Peter, of course, was one of the main key leaders in the church. And John, he would outlive all of his contemporaries. And maybe there's something that God has done in your life that is just for you. And it's, it's for your blessing and it's for your good. And God's done a work in your life to prepare you for something that you will face. Maybe God just wants to bless you. And I'm not going to sit there and go, well, why didn't I get that blessing? Because God has blessings for me. And maybe there's something that you've experienced that you've received from God that I haven't and that the person next to you hasn't. And that's okay because God has blessings for all of us. Now, all of a sudden, there's two extra guys there. Moses and Elijah. These guys are like Mount Rushmore of Judaism. Like you don't get much more important in the Jewish faith than Moses and Elijah. Of course, Moses... You know, if you're watching or listening to the 20-minute Bible study podcast, Moses is the deliverer that God raised up to bring the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Elijah is a prophet that to this day is remembered. You might've heard the phrase, leave a place for Elijah or set a place for Elijah because at every Passover meal, they set a place for this prophet who didn't die. He was just taken into heaven. And there is a prophecy that says that he will come again. And we've spoken about this already, so I'm not going to get into it. But these are a big deal. What does it mean? I believe that this is showing to these three men they've professed faith in Jesus, they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And this is God's way of confirming their faith. Of saying, here are are Moses and Elijah. And it's an endorsement of Jesus as the Messiah. But it also shows the superiority of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean much maybe to you or to me. But for them, that was a big deal. That Jesus was superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the prophets. That's a huge deal. And if you want to know more about that, I'd recommend reading the book of Hebrews in your personal Bible reading. It says that his clothes were transformed whiter than anyone could bleach. So there's something, they're trying to find words. I don't have words to describe how bright and amazing and pure and magnificent Jesus was. But I believe if you're filling in your notes that this speaks to purity and this speaks to holiness. It says a cloud surrounded them. Again, that might not mean much to you and to me, but we aren't the original audience. We weren't the people that were there. You can Google the Shekinah, the glory cloud. When God delivered his people and they crossed the Red Sea and they were leaving Egypt, it says he led them by a as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they consecrated the tabernacle, the place of meeting where the sacrifices were to be made, the cloud of God's glory filled the whole tabernacle and the same at the temple. The cloud of God's glory filled the temple. And if you've ever been to like a Orthodox or a Catholic service, just before the shutdown, uh, a week before everything shut down, I went to... uh, both a Catholic and an Orthodox church service for school, and uh, I had I had a wonderful time at both services. I had a fantastic time with the Orthodox church down on Rusk Road, and they swing that little censer, and there's smoke and perfume filling the room. Not gonna lie, it was it smelled very nice. It was a very pleasant experience to be in that smoky room. But what that's supposed to represent is this glory this cloud of God's presence. And only in God's presence can there be purity and holiness. No sin, no wickedness can exist and live and stand in the presence of God. So if you were Peter, James, and John, if you were uh, somebody who had grown up as a Jew in the first century, and you see Jesus in glory, and you see Jesus with the two most important icons of your your faith and your belief, and you see the glory of God descending. That's an incredible experience. And that's one that you have to take with you. How does the mountaintop affect me? How does the mountaintop affect you? There comes a point where you go down the mountain. There comes a point where you enter the valley. There comes a point where you enter the storm. There comes a point where you lose perspective because the fog is so thick. The hills are so high. You can't see where you are heading to. Maybe you have you know God told you to to do something, to go down a certain road, a certain path, And it just seems like you can't see your way out of things now. And and when you backtrack your steps, you say, when was the last time I heard from God? Oh, he told me to go this way. This path that I'm on that I've lost perspective, but God told me to go this way. I'm where God wants me. That's what the mountaintop is. Most of my life, Most of your life is not about mountaintop experiences. It's about steady and continual faithfulness in the same direction. It is about being faithful to what God has called us to do. When you get up in the morning and it's Monday and you don't want to go to work, but you know what? God's called me to take care of my family, to You know, be a provider. God's called me to go and be part of my world. And so I go in faithfulness to God. That's not a mountaintop experience. But there are times where I have been in the the darkest valley, the stormiest storm, and I have said, what do I know? There's a lot of things that I don't know. There's a lot of things that I don't understand. But what do I know? And I remember those moments Those mountaintop experiences, and I take them with me, and I hold tight, and I hold firm. Do I have doubts? Do I have questions? Do I have moments where I'm unsure? Do I have moments where I'm going, Is any of this real? And I remember those mountaintops, those moments, those experiences. Nothing about the transfiguration is going to prove the Christian faith to a skeptic. But it sure helped prove it to those three guys. Somebody says, Adam, why do you believe in Jesus? Well, my dad told me that it was true. That means something to me. It might mean nothing to you. It means something to me. The mountaintop affects me because it's something that I can take with me into the storm. And when I lose perspective, when I lose the ability to see the long view, I can remember what I saw when I was up on the mountain. Now they do come back down in verse nine. Well, first, I don't want to skip over verse eight. Verse 5, Peter says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were frightened. Boy, have you ever been there? I don't know what to say, but I'm, I'm unsure, I'm frightened, I'm nervous. So I'm just going to blurt out the first thing that comes to my head. And it's like, what? Why did I just say that? And then God speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. without putting too fine a point on it, I believe that we are in a season of listening. There is a lot of angst and fear for a lot of different reasons. The Bible says to be slow, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Yet America right now is quick to speak quick to be angry and slow to listen. We have to flip that. We have to reverse it. To be biblical, Jesus-loving Christians is to be slow to speak, or slow to speak, slow to anger and quick to listen. God wants to speak, and if all I'm doing is talking and talking and talking, that's why I didn't preach last week. Because I wanted to listen, I wanted to have a conversation. Maybe right now, you know, um, one of the things that, that's a, a concern as we've been quarantined or semi-quarantined for months, how's your marriage? Is there been an increase in bickering and fighting? Have you been slow to speak? Have you been slow to anger? Have you been quick to listen? How's your relationships with others? I, I heard about some people that I know who aren't speaking to their, their brothers or their sisters because of COVID or because of George Floyd. They just won't speak to each other. Flesh and blood, family. And it says that when all this was done, all they could see was Jesus. And all of it was done, all that mattered, all that was left was Jesus Christ. Everything that you and I know will pass away, but Jesus will remain. Now, verse 9, they come down from the mountain. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And we've talked about this, how Jesus did not want to publicly identify himself as the Messiah yet. So it's understandable why he said that. Verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what the rising from the dead meant. So Jesus had explained that the Messiah had to suffer, had to die, but he would rise from the dead. And they're like, is that like a metaphor? And no, it's literal, but they didn't understand. Verse 11, he asked them, or sorry, they asked him. So they asked Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So it's an understandable question. They just saw Elijah and Moses, and they know their Bible, and they say there is a prophecy. There is a prophecy, it's in Malachi, that says Elijah is going to come before the Messiah, and you're here, Jesus. We believe you're the Messiah. Where's Elijah? Was that it, or or is there more? They don't understand yet. They're trying to figure out what rising from the dead means. They've had a mountaintop experience, but that doesn't mean they know everything or they have full understanding. I think it's worth asking, am I asking the right questions? I mean, we've just asked two questions. Why should I care if the kingdom is coming? What does the mountaintop have to do with me? But am I asking the right questions? Their question, verse 9 and 10, has to do with a cultural narrative. They had a narrative that said the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from their political oppressors, the Romans. It was understandable given their recent history as a people. But Jesus says, why does the Bible say that the Messiah must come and suffer many things? Because they liked the parts of the Bible that talked about the Messiah coming and being a conquering king. And they ignored the parts of the Bible that talked about the Messiah coming and being a suffering servant. Wounded, pierced, afflicted for our sinful transgressions. They liked the conquering king part. They didn't like the suffering servant part. I think a lot of us are asking questions of life right now. And if my questions come from a cultural narrative, if I'm trying to project my American experience onto the word of God, if my questions come from hard hearts, we've seen that repeatedly as we've studied the gospel, where the disciples had a hard heart, and so they couldn't understand what Jesus was trying to say to them. They couldn't understand the point of the miracle. If my my questions are coming from an an American-centric narrative, if they're coming from a hard heart, if they're coming from a lack of humility, then watch out. Because we're not going to ask the right questions. Because again, when we're in the valley, we can lose perspective. When we're in the valley, we can lose perspective. And we start asking all of these questions of God, of our faith, And there's nothing wrong with asking questions. I hope, I've been the pastor here for almost three years. I hope that in that time, I've made it clear that we are a safe place to ask questions, a safe place to be honest about doubts, a safe place to be honest about uncertainty. But if I'm going to ask a question, I want to ask the right one. And if I'm in the valley and I've lost perspective, it could be because I'm asking questions that aren't going to help. I'm asking questions that aren't going to lead me to the true path, that aren't going to point me to the love of God. So as we're closing up, I think it's worth asking, am I in the valley right now? Maybe you're not. I hope you could say I'm having a mountaintop experience right now, that I am in a time of blessing. I hope that's the case. But I wouldn't be surprised if most of us in some way said we have been through or we are in the valley. If you're in the valley, how can you gain perspective? And maybe for you, that means going back, retracing your steps to the last mountaintop experience, the last time you were connected with God in a very clear way, the last time that you had perspective. Maybe that means pausing. Maybe that means taking a day and instead of working on your house or instead of going and doing whatever fun thing you can think of doing, maybe you need a day of rest and reflection. A day to get perspective. And if you are on the mountaintop right now, I think it's fair to ask the question, what do you need to take with you? You've been there, but it's not going to last. It's not going to last. And as you journey forward following Jesus, you're going to enter those storms, enter those valleys. What is it that you need to take with you that will be a blessing and a benefit to you during those valley seasons? Why does the coming of the kingdom of heaven matter? It's because we will not always be in this valley. We will not always be in this world of sin and death. There is a better kingdom coming. How does the mountaintop affect me? It can give me perspective. It can give me vision for the long term. And I can take from it things that I can carry with me in the dark times, in the low seasons. And if you are in a dark time, if you are in a low season, I mean, just... Use that little hand emoji, raise your hand emoji. If you have felt frustrated, helpless, angry, powerless this week, and that's just this week, let alone this year. If you're in the valley right now, God is with us. God knows where you're at. And God's asking you to respond to him. We respond in three ways on Sunday mornings. You can respond in more ways if something comes to your mind, but there are three main ways that we respond to God. We respond through giving, and we worship God through generosity of our resources. And I encourage anyone, everyone, everywhere to find a way this week to be generous, to give of your time, your energy, your strength, and yes, your money. Find a way to do something with what God has given you as an act of worship. But we also believe that there is a biblical model for taking the first fruits, that first bit that we believe it's a a tie, the 10%, but we're not legalistic about the number. That we worship God and we support the work that God is doing here at this church. We respond through worship and we're going to sing a song together in a minute. Raising our voices, praising the name of Jesus. And we respond through prayer. And if you need prayer this morning, you can ask. Ask the people with you. Pray for me. I'm in the valley. Ask the people in the chat. Pray for me. I'm in the storm. Send me a message. Send me an email adam at faithonhill.com. Pray for me. I need God's help. Pray for me, I need to repent of my sin. Pray for me, I need to follow Jesus. I need his forgiveness. There is power. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is working and Jesus is coming. Let's respond to Jesus together. Hey, Pastor Adam here. I just wanted to say thank you so much for being with us this morning at faithonhill.com. Our online services premiere every Sunday morning at ten thirty a.m. We have our Zoom meetings Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and new episodes of the 20-minute Bible study podcast premiere every Thursday. If you still want prayer, if you still need somebody to just listen to you, You can send me a message, adam at faithonhill.com. We would love to pray with you and to pray for you. God bless you this week. May God's grace be upon your life. May God's peace be spread in your heart. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.